0: Good morning, church. uh, Reading is taken from our Bible. Reading is taken from Ephesians chapter five, verses twenty-two through twenty-nine. Ephesians chapter five, verses twenty-two through twenty-nine. Okay, you follow as I read. Verse twenty-two: Wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands unto the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, and he is the Savior of the body. Therefore, as the church is subject unto Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it, that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word. 27, that he might present it to himself, a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that he should be holy, it should be holy and without blemish. So ought men to love their wives as their own bodies. He that loveth his wife loveth himself. And verse 29, for no man ever yet Yet hated his own flesh, but nourished, nourisheth and cherished it, even as the Lord, the church. This is the reading from
1: the Word of This morning, we'll be in the book of Genesis again, Genesis chapter number 29, if you want to join me there, we'll continue our series today on marriage. The last two weeks, we've seen how we against each other in marriage, and then last week we saw how we sin towards others in our marriage, today I'd like to see how we often sin towards God in our marriage. All sin ultimately is against God. However, idolatry is specifically against God. And we as human fallen sinful human beings tend to sin specifically in our idolatry against God. I'd like for us to spend some time together seeing in the text this morning a way that that happens and creeps in into our families and into our marriages particular. When I say idolatry, I don't mean you've got a statue of Buddha in the corner at the house. Idolatry takes many different forms. Perhaps you want to have the perfect marriage. That's idolatry. Or maybe you want to have the perfect spouse, or the perfect vacation, or the perfect job, or the perfect house, or the perfect children, or the perfect family. All of those take the shape of idolatry. They take the place of God because what you're doing is you're elevating them to a position of divinity. Perfect. There's only one that's perfect. That's God. You'll never reach it. And here's the problem. When you realize that you don't get it, the perfect spouse, the perfect marriage, the perfect children, when you realize you don't get it, you get angry at the one who doesn't come through for you as your God. Your spouse makes a terrible God. Your spouse will let you down. A husband might think, I need to have this perfect spouse. I need a perfect wife. And in so thinking, he begins to think through. And maybe he doesn't say it, but this is the way he's thinking. She needs to be perfect. In other words, she needs to be able to keep the house clean. And she needs to make sure that the children are all in order. And she needs to have the food cooked. And she needs to be able to clean the dishes. And she needs to make sure that... Oh, if she can help me and be my accountant, and maybe she can make sure that all of the affairs of the house are in order, and whenever I bring my friends to the house, she'll serve them as well. And the list goes on and on. Oh, and by the way, she just needs to be beautiful so that all the other guys can be envious of what I've got. And when he realizes that she doesn't live up to that, his God just let him down. And in a heart of idolatry you'll jump ship and go try to find another one. Do you see the terrible thing that idolatry does in a marriage? Oh friend, let us say clearly this morning, idolatry is an affront and a sin against God. And it will destroy a marriage. Only God can be God. And it's because He sent His Son, the Lord Jesus, to die on the cross that we can be made right the gospel can transform our lives. We place God where he's supposed to be, and we put other things where they're supposed to be under him. Our lives transformed by the gospel will have a very big impact on our marriage. I want to be right with God, me. And I want my wife to be right with God, her. And as we become right with God, we get closer to each other. Uh, if you're like me, you for the sermon. So I'll just go ahead and give you a glimpse of this. The first two-thirds of the sermon I plan on walking through rather quickly in our text here, Genesis chapter 29 and chapter 30. I'll walk through the first two-thirds rather quickly and then I'll pause. I'll step aside from the narrative, the story that we have here, and I'd like to address a common misconception that's in our society today. And then I'll come back and we'll finish out and we'll see the heartache that comes as a result of having idolatry in marriage. We'll kick off in Genesis chapter 29. I'm going to pick up reading in verse, in verse number nine. But just to bring you up to speed of what's going on in this passage, uh, Jacob is the grandson of Abraham. We talked about Abraham last week. He had Abraham, then Isaac, then Jacob. Jacob's the younger brother. Esau and, bro- and Jacob, they're twin brothers. Uh, Jacob has tricked his brother and you remember that story where he put on the goat's hair, cooked a goat's stew, acted like his brother, tricked his dad and in the darkness his dad asked who are you? I'm looking to bless Esau and Jacob in his conning scamming tricking, scheming ways lowers his voice and he says I'm Esau. And in the Father's blindness, he cannot see. Isaac says, Come to me, son, I'm going to feel you because the Bible says very clearly Esau was hairy. I'm thinking when you have goat hair on you, how hairy must have Esau been. (laughs) And dad pulls him close and he says, Let me smell you. You realize Esau smelled like an old goat. And here, the dad, Isaac, passes the blessing upon Jacob. And when Esau finds out about it, Esau is angry to the point where he says, I'm going to kill my brother. Mom realizes it. And mom says, son, you've got to get out of here. He will kill you. Get out of here, son. Jacob leaves. And I might as well just go ahead and tell you this. Jacob never sees his mom again. Mom will die before he returns back home 20 years later. There are consequences to sin. Sin complicates life, and it costs much more than you ever wanted to pay. Jacob is now run to his uncle Laban's land at his parents' advice, and we pick up our reading in verse number 9. Genesis 29 and verse 9, nine it says, And while he yet spake with them, Rachel came with her father's sheep. For she kept them, and it came to pass, when Jacob saw Rachel, the daughter of Laban, his mother's brother, and the sheep of Laban, his mother's brother, that Jacob came near and rolled the stone from the well's mouth and watered the flock of Laban, his mother's brother. And Jacob kissed Rachel and lifted up his voice and wept. And Jacob told Rachel that he was her father's brother and that he was Rebekah's son. And she ran and told her father. And so as I have three major points, the first one I take right out of this the first one I'd say, this might be the setup. This is a setup for the story Ayo La wablumia. He is head over heels in love with this young lady. She just showed up and he went, wow, she fits all the points for the wife I've been looking for. She's beautiful. She knows how to take care of goats and sheep. And not only that, she's my cousin. Wow. <laughs> Back then it was different. He's so moved that he cried. You see all that in verse 11. Jacob kissed Rachel and lifted up his voice and wept. Ladies, let me just say this. If on first meeting the guy, he starts crying, you should probably ask questions. Verse 13. It came to pass when Laban heard the tidings of Jacob, his sister's son, that he ran to meet him and embraced him and kissed him. Brought him to his house, and he told Laban all these things. Laban said to him, Surely thou art bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. And he abode with him the space of a month. So Laban takes him in. He's homeless, but he's related. He hangs out. He stays there for a month. Verse 15. Laban said unto Jacob, Because thou art my brother, shouldest thou therefore serve me for naught? Tell me, what shall thy wages be? Laban asked, You're a good worker. What would you like to get paid? Jacob does not hesitate, even for a moment. He doesn't think, "Uh, I wonder what the good price would be for me. What's minimum wage? What am I worth? No, he goes to one answer, Rachel. That's what I want. (laughs) LeWoya. I want... In those days, bride price was a thing. I want to work, and my pay will be Rachel. Verse 16. Laban had two daughters. The name of the elder was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah was tender-eyed, but Rachel was beautiful and well-favored. Laban's got two daughters, Leah the tender-eyed, and I will tell you that I read many commentaries this week to try to figure out what does it mean to be tender-eyed. And every time every commentary says the same thing, we have no idea what it means, tender-eyed. It must have been a phrase an ancient Hebrew that had some type of meaning, I like to think perhaps either she's cross-eyed or maybe it hurts to look at her. Uh, She's tender-eyed. We don't know, but she's definitely not the more favorable of the two. Rachel, however, it says very clearly, Rachel was beautiful. You can't get around what that means. And she was well favored. She looked good. And Jacob knows it, recognizes it, and says, I'm willing to work for that. Verse number 18. Jacob loved Rachel and said, I will serve thee seven years for thy for Rachel, thy younger daughter. And Laban said, it's better that I give her to thee than I should give her to another man. Abide with me. And Jacob Served seven years for Rachel, and they seemed unto him but a few days for the love he had to her. What a love story! He's working for seven years. Every day he gets to see her. She's beautiful. She's well favored. He goes and looks after the sheep. She goes and looks after the sheep. And every day they bring their sheep to come get some water. And he gets to show off his muscles and move the rock from off the top. Oh, this is a love story through and through. I have bad news for him, though. He's getting ripped off on his bride price. Seven years the going rate at that time, the going rate for uh, uh, wages, was thirty to forty-five shekels for a month's wages. And at that time, a uh, a bride price at that time, uh, sorry, a bride price at that time would have been thirty to forty-five shekels. A going rate was a shekel and a half a month. So if you do the math, you're looking at two to three years. That would have been the rate for him to work to be able to pay for a bride. He ends up working seven years. He just got ripped off two to three times more than what he should have had to pay. Um, However, we're about to find out that Laban's better at conning and scheming than Jacob is. Just remember, God's got his humorous ways of getting back at people. Jacob's going to scheme and con his way. And God lets Laban con and scheme his way. We come now into verse number 21, and I'd say that this is now the letdown. I call this scamming the con man. So here we are in verse 21. And Jacob said unto Laban, Give me my wife, for my days are fulfilled It's seven years, Dad, Tambu, and I may go in unto her. And Laban gathered together all the men of the place and made a feast. Man, this is going to be good. Seven years he's been working. Get all the people together. It's going to be a giant feast. We're going to have an awesome wedding. It's going to be wonderful. Jacob's been working. He goes and rolls that stone off on the last day, 365 days a year. For seven years he's been moving that stone. And every time he looks at her and maybe he whispers sweet nothings to her. Now it's time for the wedding. Verse number 23. And it came to pass in the evening that he took Leah, his daughter, and brought her to him. And when, if this was a movie, there was some really sad music that just got played. <laughs> Jacob went in unto her. Laban gave unto his daughter Leah, Zilpah, his maid, for a handmaid. Laban just scanned the con man. Jacob's been on the run. Been hiding for seven years and a month now, and he thought he got away with a scam, but God brought it around and scammed Jacob. I can only imagine the parallels. As Jacob comes before his dad who can't see and says, I'm Esau. And now, in the dark of the night, perhaps he's drunk after having been at this party all day long. And now he's got a wife who says, I'm Rachel. The con man has just been scammed. Verse 26, I'm sorry, verse 25. And it came to pass that in the morning, behold, it was Leah. And he said to Laban, What is this that thou hast done unto me? Did not I serve thee for Rachel? Wherefore then hast thou beguiled me? I can only imagine the shock that Jacob had when he woke up the next morning. Behold, it says. Behold. That's the surprise word. Behold. What in the world? You aren't supposed to be here. Behold, it was Leah. He's now shocked out of his mind. He skips his morning coffee and he runs straight to uh, Laban's house. What in the world did you just do to me? Laban's response, verse 26, Laban said, It must not be so in our country to give the younger before the firstborn. You think you should have said something about that yesterday? Laban says in verse 27, Fulfill her week, and we will give this also. Give thee this also for the service which thou shalt serve with me yet seven other years absolute rubbish father-in-law. You hear what he said? Take a week with Leah, and then we'll give you this other one. Like she's a truck. Spend a week with Leah, call it a honeymoon, and then we'll give you another one, but you've got to serve another seven years. Jacob has met his match with con men here. And Jacob took Rachel as a second wife. Verse twenty-eight. Jacob did so, fulfilled his week, and he gave him Rachel, his daughter, to wife also. And Laban came to Rachel, his daughter. uh, Sorry, Laban gave to his Rachel, gave to Rachel his daughter Bilhah, his handmaid, to be her maid. And he went in also unto Rachel. He loved also Rachel more than Leah, and served with him yet seven other years. And I will say this, for the rest of their lives, these three chase idols that they'll never catch. All three of them. You say, what do you mean by that, Pastor? Jacob wants a perfect marriage with Rachel. That's what he wants. He wants Rachel. serve seven years for her. On the moment when he finally can get her, he wakes up and realizes, It's just Leah. What a letdown. He's placed Rachel as an idol. Leah. Leah wants Jacob. She wants to be seen by Jacob. Jacob, look at me. But she's tender-eyed. It hurts to look at her. Dad hasn't looked at her. Sister hasn't looked at her. Jacob won't look at her. The only thing she wants is, please, my husband, would you look at me? Jacob's her idol. And Rachel, you know what her idol is? A child. I just want a child. And by the way, it will be 20 years before she has one. And when she finally gets a child, she'll have Joseph for eight years before she dies trying to have another child. You see, the things that we in our lives place as idols will always be fleeting and we'll never be able to grasp them. I want a perfect marriage, and as you chase after it, it never is attainable. For the closer you get to it, the further away it runs from you. And all that you get is heartache as you run after it. I want to be seen as having a perfect marriage. I want other people to see it, and every once in a while, the unperfect raises its head, and you get left with embarrassment. I want perfect children. I want a perfect job. I want a perfect holiday. And as you try to set those things up, they take the place of God. You get left with emptiness. And I love the way that Tim Keller said it. Verse 25, In the morning, behold, it was Leah. Every single time that you place an idol in your life, You're left with, behold, it's Leah. It's empty. It's not what you expected. I thought I would get a perfect wife in this relationship when we were dating. I thought she was perfect, and then we got married, and I found out that she doesn't wake up with makeup on. She doesn't wake up with her hair done perfectly. Young lady... I dated him and he was so nice and so sweet, and now that we're married, he doesn't say those sweet things to me anymore. And you find out it's just Leah. Because you've been placing an idol in your marriage. Friend, anytime you place something in God's place, you're going to end up with a wreck. It won't work. If you place the idolatry in your perfect children. You'll go out into the grocery store and your child will throw a fit on the floor. And you'll be left standing there angry at your child. Oh, not because they're misbehaving and they need correction, but because of the way they're reflecting on you. I don't want people to see me this way. Or maybe you thought that you could have a good marriage And you know all the rough places, and you know it was Leah. God placed a desire deep within every single one of us, friends. God placed a desire that can only be filled with him. And when you place anything else in his place, you will be left with emptiness. Behold, it will be Leah. Jacob took a second wife and Rachel. He served for seven years. In order to have her, I'd say he's been ripped off twice now. I want to take a few minutes before we continue in the story, and we will pick up in verse 31 and continue on. But I want to take a few minutes and I want to address a common misconception within our society today. I hear it frequently. and Here's the, here's the misconception, and I need to address it because it comes up in this passage. The misconception is a common claim, and I, say it's, I would say it's made by ignorant men, They say things like this. They say the Bible never said anything about not marrying multiple wives. It's commonly claimed. And I would say they are ignorant men because they don't know how to read the Bible. What I mean by that is many times people will read a story in the Bible and they will try to fit themselves into the story. They look at a story like this and they say, okay, I need to have a takeaway, be like, and oh, how many times we hear the songs that children sing, I want to be like Daniel. No, the Bible stories are not there so that you will pick a character to emulate your life after. Because if that's the case, have a look at this story. Who are you going to mimic your life after? You're going to mimic your life after Jacob? Cheat your brother and end up never seeing your mom again? Maybe you're going to mimic Laban? Con people out of which children you're going to marry? You're going to mimic your life after Leah? Just be tender-eyed and chasing after somebody who will look after you? You see, there's nobody in this story that you can mimic. And the reason is, you're not supposed to mimic anybody in the Bible except Jesus. He's the only one that we should be trying to walk after. Nobody is the hero. Joseph's not the hero. Abraham's not the hero. David's not the hero. Moses isn't the hero. We saw last week, Abraham's a liar again and again and again. Every single one of them is a fallen sinner in need of a redeemer. Oh, friend, you and I, every single one of us is in a fallen state and we need a redeemer. We need Jesus. So don't look at David and say, David had multiple wives, so I get to have multiple wives. That's an ignorant way to read the Bible. So let me take a minute and walk through. I did a lot of study this week. Anytime the word wives, plural, shows up in the Scripture, and by the way, it shows up in the Scripture 122 times. And I went through every single one of those to try to find out what does the Scripture say about multiple wives? Polygamy. What does the scripture say about that? And I'm going to just walk through. I'm going to try to do it very quickly. It is not the point of the message. The point of the message is idolatry will wreck your marriage. But since polygamy shows up here, I'm going to walk through the scriptures very quickly. The first one is found in the book of Genesis. There's a guy by the name of Lamech, he is the very first one. And he breaks the picture that God gave in the garden. The picture was Genesis 2.24. For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife. Singular. And they too shall be one flesh. Therefore what God hath joined together, let no man put asunder. And so that's the picture. But Lamech comes into this and he changes things. Here's Genesis 4 and verse 19. Very first time you see polygamy in the Bible. Genesis 4.19. Lamech took unto him two wives. The name of the one was Ada, and the other was Zillah. Now, that seems pretty tame on the surface, but watch what happens to Mr. Lamech. This is Genesis chapter 4 and verse 23. And Lamech said unto his wives, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice, you wives of Lamech, Hearken unto my speech, for I have slain a man to my wounding and a young man to my hurt. If Cain be avenged sevenfold, truly Lamech, seventy and sevenfold. You want to mimic somebody? How about we start off with mimicking a murderer who married two wives and considers himself to be eleven times worse than Cain. That's not the guy I want to follow. That's the first mention of it. Oh, by the way, it never gets better. As I walk through the scriptures, and I won't dive into them, we had Abraham who took Hagar as his wife. We saw that last week. We won't spend time on that. Esau also did this. Esau had two wives. And the words that are used in the book of Genesis, chapter 26, is that they were a grief of mind to Isaac and Rebekah. The fact that he takes two wives, it's explicitly said they're a grief of mind to his parents. And then we have Jacob and his wives, we'll see their heartache shortly. And then there's a guy named Gideon in the book of Judges. And you might remember Gideon, well known, because he put the fleece before the Lord with his 300 soldiers, they overran the 120,000 soldiers of Midian. After that, he ends up making a golden idol that the people of Israel worship, and it says that after that, he took to himself many wives and had 71 children. And the day he died, one of his sons went and killed the other 70 sons. Can I just let you see a glimpse into that family? Massive heartache as you have half-brothers vying for who's going to take dad's place. Oh, Gideon started off really well, ended horrible. Then there's a guy named Elkanah. And you might recognize Elkanah because he's the prophet Samuel's daddy. Elkanah had two wives, Hannah and Peninnah. And I think that this is important to see. This is 1 Samuel chapter 1 and verse 6, talking about Hannah. She's unable to have children. Listen to the words. And her adversary also provoked her sore, for to make her fret, she was afraid because the Lord had shut up her womb. Her adversary provoked her. Now, in English, you don't get to see that. But in Hebrew, the meaning behind the word adversary, you ready? The rival wife. The rival. That means Penina frequently said to Hannah, Look him. Migat bel. again, Now you? Nogat. Know Man you yuya. <laughs> That's what's going on in that household. And here's Hannah in fear. Terrible. Now, guess what? Elkanah does his best to try to comfort her. So just a few verses later in verse number 8, this is what Elkanah had to say. Then said Elkanah, her husband, to her, Hannah, why weepest thou? Why are you crying, honey? And why won't you eat? Why eatest thou not? Why is thy heart grieved? Am not I better to thee than ten sons? Sir, you are very bad at math. She's looking for a single son, and you think that you're better than ten sons? You're not even a half a husband. You doing the math now? Of course she's terrified, because there's another woman there who's given him everything he wants. Oh, there's heartache to be had here. I'm just revealing to you the things that Scripture has to say. Almost every single time multiple wives is mentioned in Scripture, almost every single time the Scripture also brings out all the heartache that's involved. And never is it spoken of in good light. Uh, The next one, and you've been waiting for this guy, King David. I know you've been waiting for him. So here's King David. King David had an amazing relationship with a young lady. This is 1 Samuel chapter 18 and verse 20. Right after David killed Goliath, do you remember David kills Goliath and then Saul gave his daughter? It actually took a little while before Saul finally let her go. Uh, but Saul gives his daughter and her name is Michal. This is 1 Samuel chapter 18 and verse 20. And Michal, Saul's daughter, loved David. Interesting tidbit, nowhere else in the scripture does it ever mention a lady loving a man. It's the only place. Let that sink in. The only time you get a lady mentioned loving a man in the Bible, it's Michal loved David. David takes her as his wife, but then King Saul wants to kill David, and David needs to flee for his life, and Michal saved his life, lied to her own dad in order to save David's life. She put her own neck on the line. And remember what kind of king King Saul was. He's the kind that throws spears at the wall, even at his own son Jonathan. Michal put her own life But then, David's on the run for a number of years. And I think that this helps us. There's a, a very practical thing that we need to take away from this. While David was on the run, Michal is back there in her father's house. And David is on the run. And while David is on the run, he takes a lady by the name of Abigail as his second wife. And if you know that story, it almost looks beautiful until you read the verse after it. Because David didn't keep that second wife, but for a verse before the next verse after it says, And he took Ahinoam the Jezreelite, as wife again. How many times have I said this, young people? Listen well. If you will take a second, he'll take a third. If you're going to be number two, there will be number three. Let it sink in. But here's the thing that I want us to, to, to pay attention to. Because if we're honest this morning, I don't think very many of us, or I hope not many of us, are looking for number two. I hope and I pray that that's not the case. I hope it's very rare in our church. But here's where the caution should be. Reach us. A prolonged period of separation will bring in temptation. A prolonged period of temptation will bring a prolonged period of separation will bring in temptation. You see, David is separated away from Mikal, and his heart began to wander. And he took another wife, and because he's already got a second one, now he'll just go ahead and take a third one. And then as Saul died, and in 2 Samuel chapter 3, it says that David began to raise up in power. And as he raised up in power, it says that he took another four wives. That's 2 Samuel chapter 3. And then in 2 Samuel chapter 5, it says that he took Michal back to be his wife again. And at that point, he's now got seven wives. And so what I see here is be careful because as you gain power and prominence and popularity, you begin to think that you live at a different plane and a different reality and you can do what you want to do. And so there you find yourself. And how many, do we, how many times do we see this in our very own society? How many times do we see somebody become successful? And I think that the way for me to continue with my success is to take multiple wives and have children by multiple spouses. Just as dangerous as coming to power. Just as dangerous as being away and apart from each other. Guys, I work regularly. Every Sunday night, most of you know this, every Sunday night I work with folks down at the plant. And those guys and ladies that are there are on a 28-day rotation. 28 days on, 28 days off and I do counseling with many of them, and they talk to me very openly about the temptation of being away for prolonged periods of time. Church, let me just be open and honest. Going to pick fruit in Australia for two years is not healthy for your marriage. I know that a lot of us look for that job. I know it. But it's not healthy for your marriage. I'm going to go and be away from my spouse for a long time, I realize that there are seasons that I realize that there are times when when ne- there is necessity to be separated from each other physically. I understand that, but it should never be a goal. If your heart is saying, I can't look forward, I can look forward to being away from my spouse, oh, your heart's in the wrong place. If life necessitates that you are separated, your heart's desire should be, I can't wait to get back to be with my spouse. I want to be with him. Otherwise, David, your heart will wander. He finds himself in 2 Samuel chapter 5 with seven wives. And he takes the throne. The house of Saul is gone. He takes the throne in Jerusalem. And the words are, and David took. Many wives. So many that we lose count of the number. And interesting, just six chapters later, Second Samuel chapter 11, he's in such a position of power that the men are out fighting the battles for him. He doesn't go to war anymore. He's standing on the roof of his own house. And he looks across and he sees somebody else's wife kills her husband and takes her to be his wife. Don't make a glamour out of Bathsheba's story. It could be said, rake. Here's a very powerful man with more women. And Nathan came and said, you had a lot of sheep. You didn't have to go take somebody else's. Oh, be careful. Positions of power, dangerous. Times away, dangerous. Another one, as you would know, would be Solomon, David's son. And remember, generational sin. Dads, keep that in mind. Solomon. First Kings chapter eleven verses three and four. He had seven hundred wives, princesses, and three hundred concubines. His wives turned away his heart. For it came to pass when Solomon was old that his wives turned away his heart after other gods. And a few verses later, in verse number nine, and the Lord was angry with Solomon because his heart was turned from the Lord God of Israel. Do you see the straight line? Multiple wives, turns his heart away. God's angry. Please don't tell me David had many wives so I can do to it. That's ignorant. And then you can follow through, and I won't take the time to develop each one of them, but Solomon's son Rehoboam, many wives, and his heart was wicked before the Lord. Abijah, his son, many wives, and his heart was wicked before the Lord. And the last one in all of the scriptures that's mentioned to have multiple wives is a guy named Belteshazzar. Belteshazzar is a Babylonian king. He's the grandson of Nebuchadnezzar. That Belteshazzar was having a great big party with his governor, with his wives, and a hand appeared on the wall and wrote. Literally, the handwriting was on the wall. Friend, never is it ever spoken of in a positive light. Let us be people of the word. Let us be people who are transformed by the gospel so that when things don't go well and your wife isn't fulfilling that idol that you thought she was going to, instead of jumping ship and going grabbing another one, instead you go, no, wait, what do I need to do to make myself right with God? I need to be right with God, and I'm going to pray like I've never prayed before for her to be right with God so that the two of us can be right with God together. I'll come back to our story. What should have happened after Jacob's wedding. We're going to pick up this in verse number 31. What should have happened after Jacob's wedding, and I want you to follow me closely. Jacob got married to Leah. What should have happened the next morning? I submit to you, Jacob should have gone and seen Laban, said, you nasty, dirty schemer, you tricked me. Gone back and got Leah, packed up their stuff, and left. That's what should have happened. And I know most of you have grown up thinking it should have been Rachel. But the problem is you're spending too much time watching Filipino dramas. Let's say he doesn't marry Rachel and he stays in the neighborhood. His heart is always going to be inclined to Rachel. He needs to get out of there. That's what should have happened. He married Leah. He should have left, taken Leah with him, and go have a family somewhere. You don't get to decide that the one that you married isn't the one that you thought you were marrying. Do you hear me say that? You don't get to decide that the one that you married isn't the one you thought you were marrying. I hear this in couples counseling a lot. He's just not the guy I married. He's changed. It's been 10 years and he's changed. Friend, Becky and I got married 24 years ago. And I'm not the same person I was 24 years ago. And she's not the same person she was 24 years ago. Now, I've been blessed because she's gotten sweeter over 24 years. And I'm thankful for her. But friend, you don't get to say, well, she's changed. Of course she's changed. You have too. You got fatter and balder. Guys, you don't get to say, this isn't the one that I married, so I get to go looking for a different one. And that's exactly what Jacob's doing. That's not the one that I thought she was. It's not allowed. I don't care if she has changed. And I want you to think with me this morning. If she got cancer, if your wife got cancer and she can't hold her head up anymore, she's still your wife. And if she's in a car accident and her face burns in a car accident she's still your wife. Or if she has a brain injury and has to be bottle-fed for the rest of her life, she's still your wife. And I'm going to take a minute and just give you an insight. Many of you would know Missionary Jim Bloom. How many people know Missionary Jim Bloom? Most of you don't know this part of his life. I got to see Missionary Jim Bloom. He came back to visit just a couple of weeks ago. And I got to sit in my living room and I asked him pointed these questions because I knew a little bit about what was happening. Mary Bloom was his wife, and for the majority of their life together, they came when they were really young. And I don't know how old he's up in his 70s now. And for the majority of their life, they served in Wow. Wow, balola. They served in Wow for the majority of their life together. But for the last 15 years of her life, she was half sense completely. For the last five years of her life, he had to change her nappy. And he faithfully, for those 10 years that she was half since, they were there and wow, and he would go fly that little Cessna 182. Sierra Echo Quebec, if you had anything to do in aviation, you got to hear about Sierra Echo Quebec, and he would go fly that Cessna 185 in the morning, and he'd go out and take pastors somewhere, and he'd help move sick people, and he'd always be back before noon because that's when she would wake up and start stirring around the house. And her questions when she would wake up, he was the only person she could remember. She'd wake up and start asking, where's Jim? Where's Jim? Where's Jim? Where's Jim? She's completely out of it. And Jim would show up around lunchtime and he'd take care of her at the house every afternoon. Nobody knew about it. And for the last five years of her life, he sat with her in Oklahoma, in the United States, walked away from years and years of ministry here so that he could go and take care of his wife there. Guys, you don't go get a second wife, you don't go get a new model. What God has joined together, let no man put asunder. If Mary was the idol, Jim's got a great excuse. But no. Put God in His rightful place. And serve God. And let it be a great example to others. We're back in verse 31. Mary, uh, Jacob married Leah. And now... He's married Rachel also. So we see now the rest of the story. We have heartache on the home front. Heartache on the home front. I want you to see this. Verse 31. And when the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. I said this before a few weeks ago. It is the Lord who opens the womb. It is the Lord who closes it. And we saw that again just now. Leah gets to have a baby. Verse 32, And Leah conceived and bare a son, and she called his name Reuben. For she said, Surely the Lord hath looked upon my affliction. Now therefore my husband will love me. Reuben. Oh, the irony of this. The name Reuben means to see. The very thing she's wanted all her life. I have a son now. Jacob, look it. It doesn't work. Verse 33, and She conceived again and bare a son and said, Because the Lord hath heard that I was hated, He hath therefore given me this son also. And she called his name Simeon. Simeon, to hear. Maybe my husband will listen to me now that I've given him a son. But nope. Verse 34, And she conceived again and bare a son and said, Now this time will my husband be joined to me. Because I have borne him three sons, therefore was his name called Levi, Levi, to attach, to join. I want my husband, I want his heart, look at me Jacob, hear me Jacob, be with me Jacob. No. Leah's idol was Jacob. Jacob won't look at her. He only wants Rachel. Rachel wants a baby. None of them are getting what they want. So then verse 35. She conceived again and bare a son. She said, now will I praise the Lord. I'm so thankful. She turns her attention away from Jacob, turns her attention to God now. Now I will praise the Lord. Therefore, she called his name Judah, and she left bearing. She stopped having children. And Rachel's jealousy comes into account here in the next couple of verses. Rachel can't stand it, that Leah is so fruitful. And Rachel turns to what Grandma Sarah did. We'll go and get Hagar. Hagar. So she goes and gets a servant girl, Bilhah, and Bilhah has two sons. And then that causes Leah's jealousy to rise. And Leah says, well, two can play at this game. And Leah brings in Zilpah, her servant girl, to have children by. Look at verse 10. I think there's a bit of irony in verse number 10 as she names this child. So remember, Leah has had four Now Bilhah the maid has had two on behalf of Rachel. Now Zilpah is going to have two on behalf of Leah. And look at verse 10. Zilpah, Leah's maid, bare Jacob a son. And Leah said, a troop cometh. And she called his name Gad. In other words, you want to cheat and have children? I'll cheat and have children. And there will be a whole army of kids around here. A troop cometh. These are the words. Look out, Jacob. You want kids? I'll give you a whole bunch of kids. And there is so much turmoil in this house. Idolatry. It will wreck a home. I want the perfect. I want the perfect. I want the perfect. And you set up things trying to make them the perfect. Your spouse makes a crummy God. Set God in his rightful place. The kids get dragged into this in the next couple of verses from verse 14 down to verse 16. I won't read them, but Reuben is about 10 to 12 years old. It's wheat harvest, and as a kid does, instead of going and joining the, the harvest, he goes out and starts to find what he can in the field. He finds a plant called a mandrake, and the roots of the mandrake were very valuable at that time. And he gets the, that plant, brings it home. Mom sees the plant, goes, hang on a second, we're trading and he, they end up trading around among the women for that night so that Jacob will go spend the night with Leah. Ridiculous. And Leah begins having children again. She has two more sons and a daughter. So now Leah has borne seven children to Jacob. And finally, it's Rachel's turn in verse 22. And God remembered Rachel. And God hearkened to her and opened her womb. And she conceived and bare a son and said, God hath taken away my reproach. She called his name Joseph and said, The Lord shall add to me another son. Already her sights are set. I need another child. I told you that her idol was having a baby. And she got one and wants another one. This has been her idol for the last 20 years. She'll have it for about eight. And then in having childbirth, for the one that she calls Ben-Oni, the son of my mourning. She dies and having childbirth with Ben-Oni, Jacob renames him, calls him Benjamin, the son of my right hand. And it is because of this fact that there are children, the last two sons, Joseph and Benjamin, it is for that very reason that Jacob will spend the majority of the next 20 years convinced that Joseph is dead. The very thing he wanted. I want to have a son with Rachel. And he got him for about eight years and then lost him for the next 20 as he spends the next 20 years convinced Joseph is dead. It's a result of idolatry within that family. I wonder, like Paul Tripp says, do you see other people in your life as an obstacle or a vehicle? When you have an idol... They either help you get to that idol or they stop you from being at that idol. I hope that you don't see them as either. I hope you see your spouse as an image bearer of God. That God has brought into your life and you better do your very best to be transformed by the gospel so that you can bless your spouse's life, not so that they will spend their life blessing you. Oh no, get your priorities right. Nurture the marriage that God has given you. Stop dreaming about what it could have been. Stop listening to the the lies that Satan would like to tell you. Remember, Satan's the one that will tell you, you shall not surely die. It won't be as bad as they say. Oh, be careful. Don't listen to him. Perhaps you might have placed an idol in your life, something like, I just need this promotion. Promotion. If I can work just a little bit extra, my wife can take care of the kids, everything will be fine. And next thing you know, it's 10 years down the road and you've given yourself over to that idol of promotion. And the kids are grown and your wife despises you. Be careful, an idol will wreck your home. I say this frequently when I counsel husbands. Clock out of the one job and clock into your other. Your job at work, clock out, leave it, come, clock in, and be with your family. Your children will love you for that. Your wife will love you for that. Young people, I might as well go ahead and address this. It's not about marriage, but young people, maybe your God, maybe your idol is some sports. I'm going to go play sports. Friend, I promise you that you're not as good as you think you are. And the chances of you going on to make a career out of sports are so slim that it's not even worth looking at the statistics. And so going to practice on Sunday, instead of gathering together with the body of Christ, you're placing a new kind of idol. Some couples want to have the perception of a perfect marriage. Want to be seen as having a perfect marriage. I'll, I'll be just transparent with you for a moment. For the majority of our marriage, Becky and I, that was us. Our idol was we want other people to see that we've got a perfect marriage. And it went that way for about 15 years. Want people to see that we've got a perfect marriage. She wanted my heart, and I wanted a good church. And so I poured myself out into pastoring, poured myself out into bringing more people into the church, and all the while, Becky's looking at me saying, hey, would you look at me? And I've shared this before, we would fight, when nobody was around, we would fight like cats and dogs, scream and yell at each other and say nasty things that nobody should ever say to, it, say to their spouse, should never say to anybody ever. I remember one day we were in Brisbane, we were driving, supposed to be on a holiday, enjoy your time together as a family, and we got into an argument again. And I remember as we were driving down the road, yelling at each other in the car, Hannah was sitting in the back seat, I think she was early in high school at that time, and Hannah's words have rung in my ears ever since. This is what she said, she said, Dad, if you can't have a good marriage, who can You know what she was saying, essentially? Don't try to pastor me, Dad. Terrifying words to this dad's ears. It took me about a month to finally confess it. But I called my pastor in Kentucky. I called my pastor and I told him, Becky and I need help. And we spent... Over four sessions, probably eight to ten hours, on the phone. Becky's on one side of the table, I'm on the other side of the table, and my pastor's on speakerphone right there between us. And we talked through things. I'll tell you one of the things that my pastor said to me, broke my heart. He said, your wife has to put up with a mistress in that relationship. You know what the mistress is? The church. Church, I love you. But you don't deserve to be in my marriage. And brothers and sisters, nobody deserves to be in your marriage. God does. Put God first. Let God be the one who has priority in your relationship. I put God first. And I esteem my wife better than myself. There needs to be a transformation in your life because of the gospel we can talk all day about toppling idols. And the truth is, your heart is an idol factory. Your heart making idols every day, finding new stuff to put up on a throne. And we could talk about toppling idols and getting rid of idols, but friend, the truth of the matter is you can knock down idols today and tomorrow they'll get right back up. And next Sunday we come into church and there'll be a new one that's sitting on the throne again. Here's what we need to do. We need to uproot the idols, get them out, and put God right where he's supposed to be. God, You are the priority in my life. I see You high and holy and lifted up. I see You above all other things and I will not allow another thing to come into its place. And when something tries to come up, I'm going to protect you. And I hope you hear the words of Joshua ringing in your ears this morning. Joshua 24, verse 15. Choose you this day whom you will serve. Whether the gods that your fathers served that were on the other side of the flood... Or the gods of the Amorites. You can choose. Was it the gods that came before? Or is it going to be some new god that you'll find? Choose you this day which one you'll serve. And Joshua says, but as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And I pray this morning that you will make that very same decision. My marriage needs God. Not any of the other dreams. Father, I pray... That in these closing moments, that we would be honest with ourselves. Lord, I pray that we would be transparent with you. Lord, I pray that you would help us to put God in his rightful place. If I could invite you, if you're a couple, could I invite you to come to the altar this morning? I'm going to close in prayer for our couples if you would just join me here at the altar, you're here with a spouse or your spouse isn't here. If your spouse is here, could I encourage you, pray with your spouse. But if your spouse isn't here, it's okay, you come and pray without them. The altar's open, if you would come. The rest of us, if you just stand where you're at, I'm going to pray over our couples in just a moment, but I'd like to invite you to just come on up. The piano going to play. You can just come on up. I'm going to pray for our couples in just a second. The rest of us can go ahead and stand. If you'd stand with me all over the auditorium. So many things are easy to get in the way. I'm just going to push God out of of His rightful place. And oh, how easy it is to miss it and not realize it. Father, my brothers and sisters have joined here this morning. I count it a privilege to pray with them. I pray this morning, Lord, that You would do a transforming work in our hearts with the Gospel. Lord, my life should be different because of the Gospel. I should be get with You looking less at what's wrong with my wife and start looking more at what's wrong with me. God, I pray that you would help us to stop sinning against you and start making things right with one another. So Lord, I thank you for these brothers and sisters who this morning have taken a visible step right together. And then Lord, encourage and strengthen and lift them. May our homes be different because we put God in his rightful place. It's in your beautiful name I ask these things. Amen.